I'm excited to continue our series in Mark uh, this winter. Uh, In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, we'll be here through the winter into the spring. We'll take a little break right after Mother's Day and switch gears to a mini-series about being ambassadors for Christ. I'm really looking forward to that mini-series. And then, of course, we'll be back in the Psalms this summer, chapters 21 through 30. If you're new here, we've been going through the Psalms in the summer, and so far we've done 20. And so we do 10 each year. Uh, It's the 15-year plan, if you were wondering. If you're around here at LBC for long, you've probably heard us hit on the four S's. The four S's. Do you know what they are? Seek, study, serve, and share. Seek, study, serve, share. I'm grateful for those of you who have chosen to share the gospel and not your germs with us today. Um, But I'm also excited that as we study God's word, while we're seeking the Lord in worship, I get to share with you a message about serving. You see what I did there? We got it all right there in this message. So let's stand in honor of the reading of God's word in this message about service today. Beginning in chapter 9 and verse 30, this is the word of the Lord. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee. But he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink In my name, because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Some of you are standing at home and you're sitting down. I appreciate you doing that. This passage we read is the beginning of the second time that Jesus predicts his passion in the gospel of Mark. That is his death and burial and resurrection. And as I was studying for the message today, I found it quite interesting that each time in Mark's gospel that Jesus predicts his death, it's followed by a major gaffe by one of the disciples. And then it's followed by Jesus teaching about true discipleship, a lesson in what it means to truly follow after Jesus. 
What was especially interesting to me is that the big three, Peter, James, and John, who were with Christ on the mountain, are the three that are highlighted as making those gaffes. In chapter 8, it was Peter. Do you remember? Uh, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And then Peter says, no, you're not going to die. Jesus predicts his death. And then Peter says, nope, we're not going to let it happen. We're going to take over this Roman government and we are going to rule in, in this place. And Messiah, you are going to rule. And Jesus says, what? Get behind me, Satan. And so Peter is highlighted as being rebuked. Well, here we are in Mark 9. And the highlight is on John. John comes after Jesus predicts his death and he comes up and says, well, we told these people not to exercise demons because they weren't following us. And John gets politely told, nope, if they're not against us, they're for us. And then in chapter 10, it's going to be James along with John, the sons of thunder, who are talking about who will have the seat of honor. And Christ says, nope. And then he goes on to teach about what it means to truly follow him. That the way of sacrifice and the way of service is the way of following Jesus. So you have this pattern, three cycles of Jesus predicting his death, emphasizing the importance of why he came. And then the disciples not getting it. And then Jesus turning around and teaching about self-sacrifice the role of true discipleship in every single one of these cycles in the gospel of Mark. Take note of that as you're studying this gospel. But as we dive into the second cycle today, note here that Jesus not only predicts his death and resurrection, but for the first time, uniquely, he, pre- he predicts his betrayal. This is the only one of the three where he speaks of being betrayed. Now, if you look, if you're following along in the CSB, in my Bible, In verse 31, when he speaks of the Son of Man being betrayed, there is a footnote. And I would argue that footnote is absolutely crucial. It is uh, the translation at the bottom, it says, or handed over. In other words, what the original text in Greek says is the Son of Man is going to be handed over into the hands of men. So I'm calling this the handover. Jesus tells him, The Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men. Of course, at first glance, we all know that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver by Judas, and he was led away and crucified. But Mark's choice of words here is no accident. It has overtones that would lead us back to the Old Testament and the way Isaiah spoke of the suffering servant. On the screens, I'm going to ask uh, Grant to put up the English translation of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I don't know if we actually have that. Is Isaiah 53, 6 there? Yes. So this is the Lexham English Septuagint, okay? So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and this is an English translation of that. And I want you to see the phrase. It says, we all have been misled like sheep. Each person was misled in his own path, and the Lord handed him over for our sins. Do you, do you see it there? And then in verse 12, we also read, Because of this, he will cause many to inherit, and he will apportion the spoils of the mighty, because his soul was given over to death, and he was reckoned among the lawless, and he himself bore the sins of many 
And here it is again. And he was handed over because of their wickedness. You see, long ago, the prophet Isaiah predicted that the suffering servant Messiah would be handed over because of our wickedness and because of our sins. To be handed over, we'll get a little English lesson today, is a passive verb. To be handed over is is a passive verb. And what that means is the question is, who is the subject? And I think when you see who is hand, or to whom this person is handed over, you understand the subject, especially from Isaiah. Jesus was handed over to the hands of men. Well, then from whom was he handed? The Lord, the Father. The Father handed Jesus over for our sins. This is the way the New Testament authors speak of Christ's death for sin. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, Jesus was delivered up. There's that passive again. He, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In Romans 8.32, he says, The Father did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. And then he asks, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then Peter writes, or says uh, in, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, uh, that Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and his foreknowledge. And then he says, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. See, people were responsible, but God had a plan and God handed Christ over for us. Far from being an accident, the death and the resurrection of Jesus was his mission. J.C. Ryle writes this, quote, It's not for nothing that Jesus reminds us again that he must die. He would have us know that his death was the great end or the great purpose for which he came into the world. He would remind us that by that death, the great problem was to be solved and how God could be just and also justify sinners. Jesus did not come upon earth merely to teach, merely to preach, or merely to work miracles. He came to make satisfaction for sin by his blood and his suffering on the cross. Let us never forget this. The incarnation, the example, the words of Christ, they are all of deep importance. But the grand object which demands our notice in the history of his earthly ministry is his death on Calvary. Brothers and sisters, the handing over of Jesus is our only hope of peace with God. So while Jesus is speaking of being handed over by God into the hands of lawless men, it seems all the disciples can think about is who's going to get the upper hand? The upper hand. As R.T. France puts it, while Jesus' eyes are fixed on martyrdom, they are preoccupied with the question of status. Who will have the upper hand in the kingdom? It seems so childish, so petty, 
And yet, we ought to also beware of this same tendency in our hearts to jockey for position and power. Our hearts are full of pride, and left to our sinful nature, we will, like the disciples, fill and find ourselves disputing who's who in the church instead of following our master, who is the servant of all. When Jesus asks them what they were arguing about on the way back to Capernaum, they all fall silent. I can kind of see in my mind's eye them kind of looking around at each other like, who's going to say anything here? They're a little afraid, a little ashamed, to be honest. And then Jesus decides to give them a lesson. Now, without a study Bible, you might miss this if you were just kind of reading through Mark's gospel. So I encourage you, find a good study Bible. And what I found in verse 35 as I looked along the study notes is when Jesus sat down, he was assuming the posture of a teacher. That was the way that rabbis would teach. And so this is, in a way, kind of formalizing a lesson. Jesus takes the posture of a a teacher. He sits down and he says, come gather around. We're going to have a lesson. And not only is it going to be a lesson, it's going to be an object lesson. And so he finds a young child. This is maybe in Peter's house in Capernaum. Maybe it's one of Peter's relatives. And he takes this little child and he brings them in their midst. And this was my favorite part as I studied for this message. Y'all get this. I was doing a Greek word study on that phrase, taking him in his arms. Y'all are going to love this. It means, this is a quote from a, a Greek lexicon, to put one's arms around someone as an expression of affection and concern, to embrace, to hug to put one's arms around. Listen, y'all, can you imagine being hugged by Jesus? That's good stuff right there. That is good stuff. Some of y'all need a hug today. And Jesus wrapped his arms around this child. And he says, what you need to do, instead of worrying about who's going to have the upper hand, is receive the kind of people who have absolutely no rights No standing and no status in society. Welcome them. Wrap your arms around them. Commentator pointed out that while in Western culture, we tend to view children as innocent and vulnerable, gentle, and even pure, in first century culture, they were viewed as insignificant and having no social status. That sounds a little weird to us. But just remember, with the infant mortality rate and even children dying back then, it was kind of like a way, I think, it was a way of not getting too attached at first. And so until they made age where it's like, okay, this one's going to make it, you didn't, you didn't care as much because you didn't know. And you maybe just didn't want your heart broken. That's one possible explanation. But at any rate, receiving a little child would have brought your status down. It would have associated you with someone of no power and no prestige. I'm really sad that Warm uh, didn't make this month because of COVID. But I will tell you this. Its name, especially after studying for this, is spot on. Wrapping arms round many in Jesus' name is exactly the kind of work Jesus would have been about if he was still here with us today. Friends, we need to make sure our church is a place where anyone and everyone feels welcomed. There should be no clicks here at LBC. And please, 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 let's get over ourselves 
Get out of our comfort zone and let's be hospitable to everyone. Get to know someone you don't know. Wrap your arms around them, no matter who they are or what they look like, or at least with COVID, give them an elbow bump or something, right? Like get out of your comfort zone and ask them their name. Get to know someone. I've heard a report of a newer member who told me he has not been approached by many folks here. Jesus teaches us, get over ourselves. Put away our pride and status and receive others regardless of their social standing. And yes, it can be pride that keeps us from introducing ourselves. You think to yourself, you know, shouldn't I know that person? Like I see them every Sunday. And so rather than face the feeling of being embarrassed because I didn't know their name, I will rather not ask them their name and avoid them out of pride. Because it would be embarrassing to me if I didn't know who they were. In a nutshell, Jesus' lesson to us on greatness is that to be the greatest, he says, we must be servant of all. He flips the way the world thinks about things, about status on its head. Think about this quote. Maybe write it down. I know we didn't have a bulletin, but just on a scratch sheet of paper. Christian service has been dignified by deity. Christian service has been dignified by deity. When Christ says, be the servant of all, he dignifies the service of others. We need to remember Christ has ordained this as a path of discipleship to serve others. I want to tell a little story about somebody because, well, that's what he gets for leaving us and going to Pennsylvania. Mike Williamson is a trustee at our church. He served on the search committee that brought Mark Dooley to the church. He's a deacon. He was the chair of the administrative ministry team in his secular work. He was a PMA, and I'm sure he's many things. I don't even know all the status of what he was in his secular line of work. But with all of what you did see, Brother Mike doing, what you may not have seen was this. Him on the floor, this floor, right here, hammering one staple at a time, walking across the stage on his knees. I think it was with Candy. Candy remembers this. Bam! One more staple. Bam! Thousands of them on this subfloor. And he crawled across this stage on his knees not for fanfare, not for status, but because he was serving King Jesus. And I want you to hear very clearly, before I leave Brother Mike, there are probably dozens of other things that he did that didn't make the radar like that. And hear this, there are dozens of other servants of Jesus just like him here at this church. We have a fantastic church that serves the Lord very faithfully. And they do it not because they want position or power or prestige. They do it because they love Jesus. And they've been deeply affected by the suffering servant's gift of his life for them on Calvary. We've looked at the handing over of Christ. We've looked at the disciples squabble about getting the upper hand. Now let's turn our attention to what I'm calling the handout. 
Okay, so we've had uh, the hand over the upper hand, and now this section at the last part of Mark 9, verses uh, 38 and following is the hand out. This is where the disciple John, he, he gets the spotlight, okay, and it's not very flattering. He comes to Jesus, and notice what he says in verse 38. I want to read it and add a little emphasis on a different syllable, okay? So in verse, that was, did you get that emphasis on the, okay. In verse 38, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. There's the giveaway. Whoever was doing this exorcism, though he was not a member of the 12, he was a follower of Jesus. The problem from John's perspective is that he was not a follower of us, of Jesus' disciples. He was not a part of Club 12. This comment reveals a spirit of exclusivism and pride. It comes right on the heels of Jesus' command to receive others who we would normally reject. Jesus responds, don't stop him. Because there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Now there's a profound thought. There is no middle ground with Jesus. You're either against him or you're for him. Let's not be lukewarm. Let's be hot or cold and follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And with those words, Jesus showed the disciples they must guard against building walls between believers and recognize an essential unity with everyone who claims the name of Christ. R.C. Sproul says, sadly, I know people who will not tolerate any deviation from their theology. If someone differs at any point, whether it's over baptism, art, justification, predestination, or a myriad of other issues, they think that person must not be truly saved. And he says, that's not just foolishness, it's sinfulness. To assume that all differences divide us ultimately is nonsense. And then there's the other end of the spectrum. There are those people who say no difference is essential and that it doesn't matter what we believe as long as we're sincere. And that attitude denies that there is an ultimate truth, which is dangerous in the extreme. That's really good. Let's find the middle way. J.C. Ryle, writing about the same passage, says this. Here's a golden rule indeed, and one that human nature sorely needs and has too often forgotten. Men of all branches of Christ's church are apt to think that no good can be done in the world unless it is done by their own party and their own denomination. Let us not become like that. They are so narrow-minded that they can't conceive of the possibility of working on any other pattern but the pattern that they follow. They make an idol out of their own peculiar ecclesiastical machinery and can see no merit in any other. To this intolerant spirit, this is profound, to this intolerant spirit, we owe some of the blackest pages of church history. Christians have repeatedly persecuted Christians for no better reason than what is here given by John. Let us be on guard against this feeling. It's only too near the surface of our own hearts. Brothers and sisters, we have a great church. We have our convictions our way of doing things, all of which we believe is informed by Scripture. But let us not forget 
that we will spend an eternity with brothers and sisters who did not see every detail the way we did, and that's okay. Jesus will set them straight. I'm I'm just kidding. Jesus will set us straight too. He will set us all straight on the non-essentials. We may think our fellow Christians are mistaken on some points. We may even think that more could be done for Christ if they would join us and work our way. We may see many evils that arise out of divisions and religious dimensions that grow among us. But all this must not prevent us from rejoicing when the works of the devil are destroyed and souls are being saved. If they're for Jesus, let's be for them. That's a good way of putting it. If they're for Jesus, let's be for them. Better a thousand times, J.C. Ralph says this on, better a thousand times that the work should be done by other hands than not done at all. That's a good word. How many of you have had a big project to do? Like a really whopper of a project. It doesn't matter. If it's getting done, let's praise God it's getting done. Like, let's get the work done. Let's destroy the works of Satan in this world. And let's see souls get saved. And let's be for others who are for Christ. Let's be for our sister churches. Let's not be happy when things don't go well. Let's be glad when they do go well. When they're growing. When the gospel is going forth. So if they're not against us, they're for us. That is Jesus' words, not mine. And then Jesus continues, verse 41. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. That's where I'm getting this handout from. Do you see it? Jesus says even the simplest token of hospitality and kindness that is done in his name and for his sake will receive an eternal reward. This offering of a cup of water in the biting heat of the East would have been an act of hospitality and an example of the kind of humble service Jesus had been speaking about. It becomes especially significant when you see the drink is offered to a person because he is a disciple and a follower of Jesus. He says, if they offer it to you because you belong to Christ. So so this is not just charity in general. Rather, it's an emphasis that those who provide love and support for Jesus' lowly and persecuted disciples are working for the kingdom, and they will be rewarded. So friends, as we close today, I want to encourage you to consider a couple of two, two very simple questions for application driven out of the text today. And the first is this. Are your arms open to receive the overlooked? Are your arms open to receive the overlooked? When a Christian receives or serves a socially unimportant person in the believing community like a child, he receives or serves Jesus. And when he receives and serves Jesus, he receives or serves the one who sent him. Brother Greg Sleppy's phone should be lighting up after today's sermon. People in here, people online, Brother Greg, just get ready. They're going to call you and want to help serve in children's ministry. Let's serve the least of these. And then secondly, are your hands out? Are your arms open? And are your hands out to serve others 
in Christ's name. Another area of service that was just kind of on the nose to me was the welcome team, greeters, ushers. Of course, we didn't have anything to hand out today, ironically, but you get the point, you know, greet someone, welcome them, give them a cup of water, show them where the bathroom is, give them a bulletin, a handout in Jesus' name, a small act of kindness to serve others, and not just those ways, but any variety of ways around here is a simple way to be great in the service of King Jesus. What a privilege we have to serve others. So this year, let's resolve to follow the example and teaching of Jesus, who was, of course, the greatest servant of all. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for sending Christ into the world and not just to teach us these great lessons, but Father, you sent him with a mission to hand him over for our sins. So Lord, I pray if there's somebody here today who is still under the penalty of their own sin, their own rebellion against you, that they would see in Jesus the one who bled and died and rose for their forgiveness. Lord, also, I thank you for this text, this reminder of how you would have us serve. Not for fanfare, not for prestige, not for power, position, recognition. Lord, Jesus taught us to be the servant of everyone to humble ourselves. Lord, may we not despise the lowly of society. May we not despise the overlooked in society. Father, may this church be a place with open arms for everyone. Even people who don't believe what we believe. People dead in their sins. Father, may we welcome them, receive them, and show them hospitality in your name because Jesus is a friend of sinners. May we never forget we are those sinners and that Christ has befriended us. So Lord, let us welcome and receive anyone and everyone. Test us, Lord. Grow us. Mature us. Father, I thank you for the servant heart of so many in our church. Lord, there's so much that gets done here that is not heralded. It's not for show. It's just because people want to be faithful to serve you. So Lord, I pray that you would reward with the kind of eternal reward described here in this text. Lord, may we remember at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 that our work is not in vain. Lord, help us to be faithful, consistent, hardworking, diligent servants. And let us also remember the privilege that it is to be your servant 
one of the greatest of the apostles. Every time he writes, the Apostle Paul, he says, a servant of Christ Jesus. We're no greater than the master. So Lord, help us to remember to be servants of all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.